Good morning. As, as uh, Bob explained last week, for this sermon series, uh, each Sunday we will be reading a different translation of the 23rd Psalm, and this morning we will be reading from the New International Version. So if you'd please stand and read along with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. When I decided to start this series on the 23rd Psalm, I didn't know much about sheep. But two weeks in, I know a lot more. I didn't know there was this much to know about sheep. There, there really is a lot to know about sheep. And as a matter of fact, I want to share a little bit about sheep with you this morning. You know, the first phrase in this passage that we read, at least the emphasis that we're going to highlight this morning is, I will not be in want. Or... The old King James Version says, I shall not want. Or you could say, I will have no needs. Or you could say, I have everything. Any of those phrases is the basic equivalent of those words. Now there's two parts to those words. And what I mean by parts is two meanings. I shall not want or I have no want. One part of the meaning is this. God supplies my needs. Period. It's a fact. He does. The second part of the meaning, I shall not want, seems to imply that when God supplies what I need, I am by virtue of that supply absolutely, perfectly satisfied. I'm content. I have no needs. Here's what we know about sheep. Sheep can be in the best pasture ever with lush grass and still waters and everything they need. And still, there's some of those sheep who are going to try to escape that pasture and go to another one. Matter of fact, when I was reading this week, I ran into a thing I'd never heard of before. They're called fence crawlers. A fence crawler is a sheep that walks the fence line, wherever he or she is, until he finds a weak spot in the fence or an open spot that he or she can get through, and he or she, as a sheep, goes on the other side of the fence and starts chewing on grass someplace else. You know what's ironic about it? Most of the time, 
if that sheep is with a rancher that is preparing the grass for his sheep, that sheep will leave the rancher's best grass and go somewhere where the grass is inferior. Sometimes that sheep will go where the grass is inferior and they're in severe danger. But it doesn't matter to them. Why? Because the sheep doesn't want what it needs. It wants what it wants. So it becomes a fence crawler. The same guy who was telling the story said that he had one ewe that she was a terrible fence crawler. As a matter of fact, he said she was the most beautiful sheep I've ever had. Everything about her was perfectly proportioned. She was strong. She was full of wool. She yielded so much, but she was a fence crawler. And every time he turned around, she figured out a way to wander off. But what was worse is she would take other lambs with her. They would follow her, and off they would go, and he'd find a dozen or more lambs outside the place where they should be because of this one sheep. This really didn't have anything to do with the story of the good shepherd. I mean, I guess you can make an application, but I'm not going to. I just want to tell you this part of the story because I think it's interesting. The shepherd, being a shepherd, said to himself, we can't have this any longer. As a matter of fact, this sheep is going to lead the rest of my sheep astray, and I'm going to lose one or more or two or three or four or five or a dozen to coyotes and wolves and cougars. This is not good. So at the end of the season, he brought that sheep in, and he put her down. And somebody had lamb pork chops huh, on their plate. Because he knew if he hadn't done that, he was going to lose even more sheep. Sheep are fence crawlers. They're always looking for something else that they don't have. The next phrase in this passage says that the shepherd makes me lie down in green pastures. That's a beautiful image, isn't it? But you know what's characteristic of sheep? There's at least four things that will keep them from lying down on any given pasture, green or not. The first thing that's going to keep a sheep from lying down is if the sheep is afraid at all. And sheep get afraid over anything. They'll get afraid of a jackrabbit that runs across the field. Honestly, they're very fearful animals. One of the shepherd stories I read this week, the guy said he had a large ranch and he had some family members coming to visit him on the ranch. They pulled up in the driveway. When they pulled up in the driveway, they opened the door and a little Pekingese puppy jumped out and ran up along the fence. And the sheep were so scared, he said, 200 of my sheep rushed to the far end of the pasture because of this little Pekingese pup. They're afraid of anything. A sheep will not stop and just eat grass if he's fearful. There's another reason a sheep won't feed, even on green pastures. It's when there's friction in the flock. Whenever there's sort of at odds with one another, when one is butting the other, when there's some kind of fight going on, some kind of restlessness, the sheep, they just won't eat. There's a third thing, at least, that keeps a sheep from lying down in green pastures and eating what he or she ought to eat. He or she won't lie down or eat unless the sheep is rid of pests. If there's something pestering, annoying the sheep, 
the sheep won't lie down. For instance, if there's parasites in the sheep, it will be very restless and it won't lie down and it won't get what it needs to eat. If there's too many flies flying around the sheep, that too will make it restless and it won't lie down and it won't eat. There's a fourth thing that the sheep won't lie down for. It won't lie down on an empty stomach. In other words, if a sheep is hungry, you don't expect it to lie down in green pastures. That's why sheep are always standing up eating. They eat until they're full, and once they're full, then they'll lie down in the green pastures, but not until. I just think it's really interesting that the sheep are given green pastures to lie down in, but they won't if any four of those conditions are not right. The next phrase says this, he takes me, this is my interpretation or translation of it, he takes me, the good shepherd, to green pastures. There's something proactive about this description. The shepherd himself takes the sheep to green pastures. Why does he take the sheep to green pastures? Because they're not capable of doing it on their own. They're not really capable of finding it the way you might expect. They roam into territory that shouldn't be theirs. They roam into places that are dangerous for them. And quite frankly, they're not smart enough to find green pastures. Only the shepherd is. I didn't know this about sheep either, but most sheep are raised in an arid climate. They're not raised in a very big, open pasture, lush kind of climate with plenty of rain and green grass. One of the reasons so many sheep are raised in an arid climate is because sheep can easily, you might imagine with the wool, get ticks and fleas and all kinds of other things in their coat. But in an arid climate, those bugs are not as much a problem. However, in that arid climate, you're not going to find a huge open pasture that's available to you all the time. So the shepherd constantly has to take his sheep to that green pasture, and the sheep has to be led to that green pasture. Furthermore, the green pasture in many arid places in the world, Israel and other places, is actually prepared by the shepherd. It's not just there. It's not just that hillside over there is green. That hillside over there is green because the shepherd actually has cultivated that soil. He's removed rocks. He's removed plants that are in that soil that are harmful to the sheep and to the soil and to the grass and planted grass on that hillside so that at certain times of the year that will be a lush green pasture. He takes me or makes me lie down in green pastures, even in the arid lands. The next part of it says, my good shepherd leads me beside still waters. Probably most of you know this. Sheep are scared by running water, at least fast running water. A sheep is not going to take a drink out of a rushing stream. The shepherd knows that, and since they're afraid, he takes them to calm waters. But the shepherd also takes them to pure waters, because sheep are inclined to drink anything. And frequently, they'll bypass something that's perfectly good water and drink out of a mud puddle just because it seems still and calm. And in the mud puddle, there are often all kinds of things that can hurt the sheep. The kinds of things that can hurt the sheep in the mud puddle is they can actually ingest parasites that can do harm to them and eventually kill them. 
They could actually ingest nematodes, another thing that's detrimental to their physical health. And they can ingest a thing called liver flukes that will invade their liver and destroy their liver. The shepherd knows where to take them, what water, what still water they ought to drink from. And he guides them there. The other phrase um, in our passage this morning that I want to emphasize is this. The shepherd restores my soul. There's an implication there, isn't there? One, that the sheep needs to be restored. And of course, if we're in the picture, our souls need to be restored. Maybe some of you have read the Psalms enough to remember this passage from Psalm 46. David says, why are you downcast or cast down, O my soul? Remember and hope in God. I always thought that was a curious way of saying, why are you depressed? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And in studying, I I found a link. Here's the link. Sheep are frequently cast down. It's a phrase that a shepherd knew well and used frequently. A cast down sheep was a sheep who had been walking upright, probably got into a little, oh, like a ravine or even a soft place in the ground and decided to lie down. And when he lied down, gravity would take over and he would flip over onto his back. And his feet are up in the air. His hoofs are pawing. He's trying to get up and he's absolutely helpless to get himself back up. Completely helpless. Why are you cast down, O my soul? You got a good shepherd. He's going to take care of you. You know what would happen when uh, a sheep was cast down? And this happens all over the place. Um, If they were in that position long enough, they would die. When they have their feet straight up, they're in panic, they're kicking and flailing the wind. And before long, the blood begins to drain out of their legs. And then before long, they basically die in that position. Sometimes it could happen in a matter of hours, depending on the conditions, the heat or the humidity, or whether or not they've had enough water or food. Sometimes it could happen in a matter of two days. But a sheep that's cast down, it's going to die unless the shepherd takes care of it. What would the shepherd do? He would come to the lamb and he would lift him up on his feet. And frequently that lamb did not have the capacity to walk and he would stay there with it until he got his legs back. And then on they go. One story about sheep I read this week was a shepherd who was going to be away for a period of time and he told his young son who was still in school, look, I'm going to be gone, but I want you to come home And I want you to watch after one particular lamb. You know which one I'm talking about. It's always cast down. I want you to keep a watch over it. Come home and go out in the field and find it every single day. And if you do, I'll give you a handsome reward at the end. The kid did it, and the kid got paid well, and the sheep lived. You know what he said about the sheep? He said, it's a great thing that sheep lived. It was a wonderful sheep. He gave me two lambs at the end of the year. 
Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? You got a good shepherd. Now that's my story about sheep and shepherds. It's real nice, isn't it? Now let's get honest. Seriously, here's my critical side. You know I've got it, those of you who know me. <laughs> real nice story. But I don't always have everything I need. Do you? I mean, even if it's not me, maybe I'm a wussy and I do have everything I need. I know other people who are following God that don't have everything they need. And so for me to understand this passage, I've got to be honest with it, right? How can I even embrace this phrase, I have everything I need, when I'm starving to death? When my enemies are all around me, when I'm on the verge of being killed, or when I'm being persecuted, and I'm going to lose my life. When I read this phrase, I have to remember who wrote it. It was David. The one who was chased like a dog throughout the hills of Israel, into the desert. He did not on every day have what he needed. He did not on every day know that at the end of the day he could rejoice in the Lord right there where he was because he's afraid he'd be dead. He did not have a peaceful life because Saul was seeking his life all the time. And it's the same person who says, I've got a good shepherd who supplies all my needs. I have to remember that there are other people who embrace this idea that God is their shepherd and God supplies their needs. And they've been persecuted. They've been stoned and oppressed in a variety of ways. And they've been killed for their faith. They say, God supplies all my needs. i got to remember that Jesus Christ my good shepherd hung on a cross and screamed out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he said, my God supplies all my needs. And he died on the cross. So when I hear the phrase, I have no needs, I've got everything I want, and then I want to whine, I have to remind myself that people who did not have everything they needed said these words. You say, Bob, you're just making the problem more difficult. Good, we're on to something. What we have to believe and know for sure is that these words do not mean the absence of adversity. If they mean the absence of adversity, they make no sense. Because we know adversity is a part of our lives. We also have to remember that these words do not mean that you will always be content. Even though it sounds like it. Why? Because it's talking about us. The same psalmist who wrote these words who seems so contented with God as his good shepherd, 
is the psalmist David who expressed routinely anger not just about his circumstances, but anger towards God. Vitriol. Bitterness in his prayers towards God. It's that person who said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So how in the midst of this tension, I haven't created unrealistic tension, right? It's your tension. I just described it. How in the midst of this tension can we embrace these words and believe the principles of the 23rd Psalm? How do we understand the 23rd Psalm in the context of the real world? Several ways. First, we have to realize that we are the problem. Folks, we've got to realize that part of the problem here is that we'll never be satisfied. We've got to realize that even when God supplies our needs, we don't think it's enough. We have to admit and embrace the reality that we're fence crawlers. Every one of us is. We're all fence crawlers. That's why the words don't make sense in any given day. Because we want what we want, not what God gives us. We want what we want, not what we need. So that's why it doesn't make sense sometimes. That's why it seems like a factual absurdity to say I have everything I need. Because I'm part of the problem. The second thing we have to understand if we are to understand these verses that we have to accept the blessing of adversity. And no, I didn't misspeak or write it wrong. I meant exactly what's on the board. The blessing of adversity. When's the last time you thought of adversity as a blessing? If you've read the Bible and you don't believe that it is a blessing, you've just ignored half the Bible. Because routinely the biblical writers help us to understand that adversity actually is and can be a blessing. One of um, the most amazing men who understood this concept well was a person who wasn't a Christian, but he languished away for a considerable amount of time in a Nazi concentration camp because he was a Jew. His name was Viktor Frankl. He wrote Man's Search for Meaning, amazing book, and others. Some of the most incredible quotes come out of his writing. But one quote is this. Listen to these words. When we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. That's a picture of the blessing of adversity, my friends. When adversity comes, whatever it is, wherever it comes from, it's a circumstance that is likely out of your control. Because if it was in your control, you'd make it go away, right? It's a situation you cannot control. You can't change it. But you have an opportunity to change yourself.
That's a blessing in disguise. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He realized that he had gone through persecution and he knew that you, who are reading him, would eventually go through persecution. So he put it this way. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. No matter what's going on in our lives, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The adversity of tomorrow is earning for you an unbelievable eternal glory with God when you stay with your good shepherd. The third way we understand these words is we embrace the reality of the spiritual. Right, the Bible tells us, and even philosophers will tell you, that the world of the visible is accompanied by the world of an invisible. And the Bible will tell you that the world of the invisible is even more real than the world of the visible. It doesn't seem right because this seems real. It's hard wood. I know it. I can analyze it. I can see it. That seems real. And the Bible tells me that there's something more important and more real than the things I can see and the things I can touch. There's something more real even than the things I feel. There's truth and reality, spiritual truth, that's outside the material. We'll never understand, I shall not want, when we are in want. If we don't understand this concept of the spiritual, outside the realm of the material. If we understand it well, the physical is defined by the things we can't see, not the other way around. That's the only way to embrace these words. Um, I'm, I'm not a stoic. I complain when I have been pain. I strike back when I'm irritated. I, that's me. But you know what? I, having studied philosophy a bit, kind of appreciate the Stoics. At least at one level. Because the Stoics basically said, you know what? You can touch my body, but you can't touch my soul. That is my domain, not yours. So no matter what life throws at me, I can not only endure it, but I can be better in my soul because of it. Or, more likely, I can just be placid and not let my soul be affected. A Christian understand Stoicism as interesting, but short-sighted and not quite there, right? Short-sighted in this way. The Stoic seems to imply that everything is about the reality in front of you, and in the middle of the reality, you can find some kind of nirvana because your soul can't be touched by pain or evil. The Christian says something even more than that. The Christian says that the forces of evil and adversity which press in upon you need not damage your soul, but they can shape your soul. 
In other words, the adversity that you experience can craft you into the image of Jesus Christ, your Lord. There's a way in which that adversity is touching your soul, but it's going through a metamorphosis of grace. The metamorphosis of grace is to shape you into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the Christian approach to adversity and suffering. But the only way you get there, my friends, is by embracing the spiritual reality of your existence. If you don't, the words won't make sense. A fourth way we understand uh, these words is to remember that it's a process. It takes time. As Paul said, I've learned the secret of contentment. I know what it's like to be with and without. And in the midst of being without and in the midst of being with, I've learned the secret of contentment. It takes time. And the Lord's not always going to seem present. And He's not always going to seem like your good shepherd. But it's through those times that the process of sanctification and understanding of these words takes place. The fifth thing. We understand these words only when we believe that life is eternal. Not just a spiritual reality around us. Not just that adversity creates character in us. But the reality that life is eternal. Let me put it differently. The words don't make a bit of sense unless you believe in the eternal. They're just high sounding phrases. But if you believe in the eternal life to come, in the promise that comes through resurrection in Jesus Christ, then these words take on an entirely new meaning. As Paul said in another place, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is not seen. Not on the seen, but the unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Here's the eternal perspective on God is our good shepherd. It doesn't make any difference what happens to you tomorrow. You, as a believer, have inherited eternal life. And as hard as tomorrow is, it will pale in comparison to eternity. Let me put it another way. You won't even remember it. That's what often keeps you going. It's the promise of eternal life. Our good shepherd does supply all our needs including eternal life. Final thing we have to do if we're going to understand this passage is well, we just got to trust the shepherd. It won't happen elsewhere. We have to trust him. We have to trust him that he knows what he's doing. We have to trust him because we know he's walked this path before. We have to trust him because we know he will restore our souls. You know that story I told you about the sheep when they were cast down? And when the shepherd went to 
prop them back up. I want to finish it. The shepherd goes and he, he pulls this heavy sheep back up on its feet. Depending on the length of time that it's been cast down, it can't stand at all. So the shepherd, in this description, he said, I used to pull up a cast down sheep. And then I would step on either side of them, support them with my legs because they couldn't support themselves. He said, I would reach down and one leg at a time. I would massage the blood and the life back into the limb. He said, the whole time, I was talking to them. Sometimes mildly scolding them. Are you kidding? This is the second time this week. Why do I always have to pick you up? Aren't you ever going to learn your lesson? But he said, I also would always be telling them, it's okay. Your shepherd's here. You're going to get back up on your feet. You're going to walk again. It's okay. See yourself? You're the sheep. Sometimes cast down, legs flailing, terror in your soul, and limbs that don't work. And your good shepherd sets you upright and says, walk with me. You can do it. And eventually, he will walk you into eternal life. That's why I can confidently say, I have everything that I need. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're glad that you supply our needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And often we say that in regard to daily living. And it's, an, it's true, everything we have is a gift from you. But Lord, help us to remember in the midst of daily life when we feel cast down, when circumstances uh, oppress us like the pest that oppressed the sheep, when we're fretting and we can't even lie down and we can't sleep and we're overwhelmed. Help us to remember that you will never leave us and you'll never forsake us. And help us to remember, Lord, that there were times... Our memory may be foggy in the midst of the difficulty, but there were times when we knew you lifted us up and you put us back on our feet and you helped us believe again. So, Lord, this week, if it becomes the case that one of your sheep who's here this morning is cast down, please remind them that the shepherd is there. Give them the courage to stand again and to move on. We know this, Lord. Your grace is enough for anything. And your love for us is eternal. And at the end of the day, your love cannot be defeated because we will inherit eternal life. That is the greatest gift of all from the greatest shepherd of all. In whose name we pray. Amen.